No matter where your business is in Canada, connectivity shouldn't be a concern. Whether your business is rural, remote, or urban, reliable, scalable internet is available to you and your business. Explore Business is expanding our network. With our extensive fiber, fixed wireless, and satellite networks, we're able to bring you the connectivity your business deserves, with the ability to grow right where you are. With investments in fiber and 5G technology, Explore Business is your new choice for business internet. Get connected with Explore Business today. Are you ready to clear a new path? Welcome to Clearing a New Path podcast, a space for the underrepresented voices in rural Canada. I'm your host, Shauna Ray. Each episode, we'll speak authentic truth because it's the truth that connects us. We'll examine issues, solutions, and hope outside of the city limits. Clearing a New Path podcast is an invitation to listen and learn along with me on the road to building a more united, feminist, anti-racist rural Canada, one rooted in diversity and driven by reconciliation. Let's learn together, clearing a new path. recent chain of events, I found myself sitting and watching on my laptop, a previous recording of a municipal council meeting on a YouTube channel, a municipality in rural Alberta. It's called Old Alberta. The CAO was briefing council and a delegation that was there for another matter on why the administration was recommending that the municipality get out of what he called proclamation business. Here's a short clip. To be blunt, there's so many um, specialized days, causes, holidays, etc, etc, coming up in recent years that um, administration's recommendation the council was around concern that eventually we're going to say no to a proclamation or a cause very important and dear to someone, um, whether that be Save the Rainbows Day or I love Panda's Day, whatever it might be, being a bit facetious now. But um, given that there's a growing number of proclamations, they do take time to prepare and present and whatnot, that it seemed more uh, proactive to get out of the proclamation issuing business. This prompted me to inquire around my own area in rural Ontario. Was this something municipalities were using to avoid supporting specifically pride events? In rural Ontario, in the small town of Norwich, Councillor John Scholten is proposing a policy that only federal, provincial, and municipal flags be flown on any Norwich township property, and that only banners related to the, quote, promotion of downtown businesses or for downtown beautification, unquote, be installed on township streetlight poles. Let's be honest, that's just exclusion. 
I decided to ask Dr. Jackie Newman from Western University in London, Ontario, her thoughts about what all of this means. Dr. Newman is a professor in the Department of Politics and International Relations at King's University College at Western University. She writes and researches on topics of gender and politics. Currently, she is undertaking a research program, This Is Where I Do My Work, which examines the motivations and commitments of women municipal councillors. As far as rural politics goes, you know, we're seeing, at least I'm seeing, in some of the smaller rural communities, uh, a movement towards getting rid of proclamations and, you know, there's no discourse on it. There's no discussion from this particular situation in Owls, Alberta, but I think we're seeing it play out in, in various small communities across Canada. What are your thoughts on that? And, and what has been your experience uh, as far as the, you know, municipal politics and politics in rural communities in general? Just Generally, across the board, municipal municipalities have had problems with proclamations. Right, um, there's always been, uh, I would say, a continuous discussion, um, depending on who the council is, on whether or not certain proclamations should be made, certain days should be designated, and I think a lot of it depends on who the councillors are, and what their views are of what the community is willing to accept. right? And when we talk about how counselors think of this, we're really talking about how counselors are viewing what can be very squeaky wheels, right? That can make life difficult for them or can have, you know, will have sway in terms of their re-election and, and election concerns, right? And because rural communities are that much smaller, and, you know, in some cases we're looking at communities that are, you know, 500 people, 600 people, right? The level of intimacy and connection between the people who live in the community and the councillors is that much more acute so councillors are going to feel when certain members of their community and possibly certain supporters are very concerned about an issue. And so proclamations have always been a little difficult, right? Because, you know, any community group can come forward and, and, and ask for a proclamation and what do you do when those proclamations are, let's say, within the discourse, right, considered to be problematic by certain, you know, and often not majority voices within the community? So it makes it very difficult. And so I think that the easiest thing for communities to do is to say, that's it we're not going to do this because we don't want the trouble that it brings. We don't want to incite division and and what have you, because that's exactly what the Norwich Municipal Council said, right? was we don't want to bother with proclamations because we're worried that people get up in arms and it 
is a problem for peace and order in the community. Right? And in the terms of Norwich, right, there's that background where signs were damaged during Pride Month last year. But the problem is that at the moment, and actually in the past, because let's be honest, right, the real stumbling block for proclamations, right, is LGBTQ2S groups and the kind of proclamation of Pride Day or Pride Month and, uh, or, you know, of the of, of of pride parades. And that's always been the case. But I think we're now in a place where just with what has happened through COVID, what is happening in the United, definitely in the United States, that we're certainly seeing a anti-LGBTQ uh, discourse, right, that some of these councils are trying to stay, uh, you know, ahead of. And let's be, also be honest in terms of there are some councillors out there that are actually enabling this, right, and encur- encouraging this. I think the thing that's interesting is that we've seen this also happen in larger communities, right? Because for a long time, you know, London didn't have proclamations because of the mayor not, you know, a former mayor not wanting to support pride. And, you know, and then we also ended up with concerns around, you know, white supremacist groups coming in. I will be honest, I think that a lot of it also falls to the fact that city staff, right, have to be cognizant of these applications for proclamations when they come in. And it's easier for the larger uh, municipalities because they've got more staff, right? Um, You know, a lot of small rural municipalities like have one maybe two staff people who look after council um you know they they, you know they've only got a minimal staff in the clerk's office um so that's an extra burden for them to do it so i think some councils are just coming out and saying you know this is too much too much work but the difficulty of that is, is that it's a form of exclusion right and and this was something that you, you would emailed me about in terms of this concern around the the kind of inclu- exclusion that is occurring in municipal councils and particularly rural municipal councils. And I would argue because of the size factor, it becomes more acute in rural councils because you've got a smaller population, you've got much more intimate relationships between people in the, in, in the town and people who sit on council. So squeaky wheels have, in a way, a lot more access to make count- councillors' lives, you know, more difficult. <laughs> yeah, I think the problem is, is that we end up with groups being excluded and they're not being enough voices in the community or enough interest in the community to actually help fight for those excluded voices. I guess what I'm 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 saying is that the issues are felt in both larger urban settings, right, and rural settings. But in rural settings, 
things are f- much more acute because the, of the small population. And let's be honest, while rural communities are becoming a little more diverse, right, they're not as diverse as, let's say, a metropolitan or ur- urban setting. So for someone who is different in, in, in any way, they're already extremely isolating. And so when you have a city council that then says, okay, we are not going to have a proclamation for Pride Day. We're not going to have a proclamation for the um, Pride Parade, or we're not going to have a proclamation for various kind of ethnic groups uh, and what have you. There's that sense of isolation. And in terms of, yes, most municipalities now have language and policy around equity, diversity, and inclusion, right? So much of that is spectacle. Even in the larger communities, we're seeing that bringing in policies, bringing in entire kind of departments or committees within the city hall kind of policy structure to to oversee this. And it's not entirely clear what they're even accomplishing. But then the municipality can actually turn around and say, we have this committee. You know, we're following through on our, our, our EDI requirements. If you don't have the voices in the community to turn around and say, but yeah, this com- committee hasn't met, right? Um, or, you know, this is, this is just window dressing. Then you're stuck. When we look at the interest in municipal politics across the board, right? For example, the last municipal elections in Ontario were poorly attended to, right? People weren't paying attention and people didn't turn out to vote, right? That's the same thing on a day-to-day basis. So people aren't paying really attention to what's happening in their municipalities unless it's an issue that they feel really strongly about, something that really affects them. What we're missing is what I would call the middle of the road, the middle of the road voters and citizens who are actually very tolerant and willing to support, right, to an extent, uh, support proclamations for LGBTQ people. and But their support is kind of a status quo thing, right? It's a passive support. They're not going to be active about this support, right? And because they're not involved in, in municipal politics, right, because they seem uninterested in it, what we end up is the extreme voices, right, on both the right and the left, taking up a lot of space in terms of what's being said and and what's being demanded of, of City Hall. Again, because of the size for rural municipalities, that's just much more acute. So you have councillors reacting. Yeah. And so the polarization that we see playing out across the entire country, you know, province by province and federally, I could see why municipalities would want to shy away from that polarization uh, Mm -hmm. when it comes to proclamations. But by the same token, I think what people aren't realizing, and you touched on it, is that you're removing discourse. You're actually, so the thing that I find problematic and shocking isn't 
that they remove proclamations. It's that there was no discussion about it. None of the counselors brought anything up. None of them talked about it. They all voted in favor of it in this particular case. And, and I find that really troubling that there is no discussion, that things are slipping through without people watching. I'm probably one of the very few people <laughs> that watches the YouTube channel for my Middlesex County, um, you know, council. I, in fact, I know I'm the only one sometimes on the YouTube channel watching it live. And are people even interested? And, and I can understand, again, going back to voting, like you mentioned in the municipal election, the apathy comes from the uncomfortableness of the, di the division and the polarization that we see. So mm -hmm. people are, are not open to having uncomfortable conversations, specifically in a political realm. That's my take in a rural community. One other thing I wanted to touch on um, when you said about the squeaky, squeaky wheel and the people with the voices, well, let's say in a, in a metropolis, it's hmm. a lot easier to, to be lost. And in a rural community, there's a lot of risk in having mm -hmm. your voice heard. And if you live in an isolated area, you could be targeted. Let's be honest. I mean, that, that we're living in a time that is very contentious. And I'm, obviously, it's not the first time in history, but it, it is a very troubling, turbulent time to be having a voice. And, you know, this is what people are saying. This is when real allyship comes into play, where you're actually having a voice for people who shouldn't be taking the risk. You should be taking the risk because you have safety and mm -hmm. you're, you know, kind of at the top of the white supremacy scale, mm -hmm. shall we say. To me, that's a troubling thing in and of itself is the safety, uh, the lack of discourse. And you mentioned, you know, proclamations is removing uh, support specifically for equity deserving groups of any kind. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, and and they're just kind of hands off that like a council doesn't want to be involved and and that i think is is a troubling troubling thing that movement mm -hmm. you have to think of it in terms of for councillors the primary concern is right to try and make the most people happy right but you don't necessarily have the best information to do that, right? So you are likely to fall to, you know, um, those that make the most noise. The people who are making the most voice actually could be your base. Because we see, you know, we see, you know, the uh, kind of uh, ideological range on council, um, you know, while they're not technically partisan, um, but there is an ideological range from, you know, the more progressive to the more right-wing or conservative. And sometimes that right-wing isn't actually conservative. It's pretty darned radical. A counselor is going to be playing this kind of mental process of trying to balance out what they hear in the community and what they're not hearing in the community, right? And so your tendency is going to be to address the more vociferous groups because you know the more passive groups aren't going to be worried about this, right? Or don't appear to be worried. 
And that is the big problem, right, is that at least when you're in a much larger metropolitan community, as you pointed out, there is this sense that you can disappear. I'm not entirely sure I would say it's you can disappear, but you have a certain degree of anonymity and also a certain understanding that there are just because of the sheer population size, more people like yourself in which you can build kind of strength so that you are not going to be the lone voice standing in front of council saying, I'm being excluded, I'm being picked on, right? And therefore making your making yourself a target. And that has always been the distinction between right small municipalities and large municipalities in that it's much easier for large in large municipalities to actually establish a campaign to counter the views and uh, you know and the positions of another group working against against your interests i think also the problem we're facing now is that since the emergence in the united states of such vitriolic discourse regarding LGBTQ communities has I really enabled, right, and encouraged voices in this country that in the past wouldn't have said anything to actually go out and do this publicly right? There's almost this kind of mainstreaming of it, right? You know, the anti-drag, the kind of anti-pride days, the anti-trans, uh, um, what have you. And, you know, let's be honest, you know, there are cert- certainly some areas that are going to be more prone to that than others, right? Because of the, dem- the demographics. And also one could say the political cultures. So it's not surprising that we're looking at Old Alberta, right? Which is the clip, the clip that you showed me. In terms of, we've got a provincial government that has been for the last while pandering, right, to the this sort of discourse and enabling this sort of discourse. I'm not saying that all of Alberta are inveterate Trumpists, inveterate kind of um, right wing. Um, they're not. But it does actually skew, right, to a UCP support in areas like Alt. There are progressive voters, there are progressive people who live in these communities, but they are in fact drowned out by a much more kind of right-leaning, anti-inclusive, regressive, I would say, voice. I would say there are two things going on here. The one thing is that we have this understanding that the discourse is becoming much more kind of right-wing and anti-equity-seeking groups in this country. One, because the media has glommed onto this and is following this, right? So we get lots of news stories about it. And then you tie that in with a generalized disillusion and uninterest in politics, right? Of the, as I was saying, the middle of the road, get along to go along individuals. And that's actually a really problematic 
place to be because as i was as as i said before it means that those ra- more radical voices right are what we hear and we react to that discourse um and if you're a city councilor that reaction may be to say we're worried about the division all of these issues are, co- are causing. Let's get rid of these issues by not having proclamations. Which makes you think that one way of dealing this, with this may be not having the allies work at the municipal level. I think, you know, they should, but again, you're always running the risk, right, of Tar- of, of being a target yourself because, you know, destroying LGBTQ signs during Pride Month is targeting individuals. Instead, actually focus attention on the provincial government. Why I'm saying that is in terms of, as the councillor and olds made clear, right, they weren't going to touch the proclamation around Indigenous Day right? And all children matter day. And the reason why they're not removing those days, right? The proclamations for those days is because those proclamations are actually given by the provincial and federal government. I think what could be helpful in this, in this sense is to actually have the provincial groups come together um, and advocate at the provincial level, right, to protect or to have the municipalities actually endeavor to be supportive of Pride Month. Well, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Engaged, uh, progressive rural communities banding together, working cooperatively and collaboratively to lobby the provincial government, whether that's in Alberta or Ontario or Nova Scotia, mm-hmm. to have a Pride Month provincially, so that that is a designation that must be recognized or at least considered because the province has proclaimed it or federally they have proclaimed it. So mm-hmm. going higher up might be a better course of action. However, yeah. I would argue that it could get tied up, right? It mm-hmm. could get tied up in <laughs> in waiting people out, right? Yeah. Waiting people out for legislation. So Yeah. And of course it's going to depend on, you know, the opportunity structures at the pr- provincial level. Who is your provincial government? Um how supportive are they of this? But it does allow individuals within smaller communities a certain ability to maintain a level of anonymity so that they don't feel targeted, right? The, or they don't have to they don't worry about being targeted. And I know it it's also problematic because I also believe that, you know, municipalities are where truly interesting democratic things can happen, right, within the boundaries that that are set provincial governments. And it feels a little not nice, right, to then say, well, let's pop this upper level and have, you know, 
big brother or whatever you want to call it, look after this. And then we can all throw our hands up and say, hey, you know, we're going to have the pride parade and we're going to have the pride month because it's provincially mandated. Right? It does let, let counselors off the hook. Although there are those counselors out there in both big and large, you know, big and small communities who actually are boiling this pot because it works for their interests. There's always still the problem that what happens at the municipal level is just a kind of a spectacle, a show of accommodating and, and doing this. But when push comes to shove, in terms of true implementation, there's nothing really done. If you think about it, multiculturalism doesn't get talked about until, you know, the early 1970s, right? To go from kind of the early 70s to where we are now, where Canadians are so committed to the notion of multiculturalism, and that we generally, you know, apart from a squeaky minority, understand that, you know, we are multicultural, right? The more we do EDI, even as theater, right, even as this spectacle, the more it kind of goes into our brains that we are a country that is committed and works towards equity, diversity, and inclusion, right? It's just, it's a slow process and it has to be repeated and repeated and repeated. And that does take a concerted effort to get the middle of the road interested in these issues at the local level again and to build allies within the community. The more voices you can get doing that in a general sense, right? the more support that gives for really vulnerable people within the equity-seeking groups. Cover in the sense so that they are not obviously one individual standing in front of a council saying, what about trans rights? You know, and therefore they're making themselves a target. I guess my other thing is to say that in terms of pushing campaigns, right, for inclusion, pushing campaigns against this very squeaky wheel hostage taking of political discourse requires people getting people mobilized again. That leads nicely into another question. You're doing some research into specifically women counselors in Ontario. What I'm seeing, this is an observation, is the women that are counselors that I would say are maybe under 45 mm -hmm. are more interested in promoting equity deserving groups, mm -hmm. in making those proclamations, and in communicating to the community at large through yeah. social media. So by doing that, so by communicating, here's all the information from the council meeting. Here's yeah. the budget information. Here's, you know, here's all of this information so that I'm not the gatekeeper anymore, mm -hmm. that I'm empowering you all as community members. You now have the information. I'm sharing power with all of you so mm -hmm. that you can be empowered to have the community that you want. Mm -hmm. And oh, by the way, I'll support you when you come to council. So yeah. 
are you are you seeing that kind of a a movement with specifically female counselors? You know, we're talking about equity, uh, diversity, and inclusion. The top of that, or or just skimming the surface surface of that, is gender equality, mm-hmm. right? So getting more women into politics, mm-hmm. and then once there's more women into politics, and they make broad changes then that opens the door for other equity deserving groups. Yeah. Am I on the right yeah. track there? It's definitely. I would say that modeling behavior, if you can see it, you can be it. One of the problems that we still have, right, is that for a long time we've had this belief that there are more women involved in municipal councils. Um, that more women are going to be involved in local politics. I think, you know, when you look at the sheer numbers, yes. But when you look at them in a relative term, terms, no. Um, actually, in Ontario right now, women are better represented at the pr- provincial level because the provincial level has gone up above 30%. Basically, um, the number of women on, on councils, and, and, and I'm including Canada here as a whole, it's still between 28 and 30 percent. And so we're talking 28 and 30 percent as opposed to 50 percent of the population, right? Uh, Contrasting to 50 percent of the population. So there's still a problem with the fact that we don't have a truly equitable number of women sitting on city councils. It is interesting, however, that when you talk to women who are serving on city councils. It is quite astounding the number that actually say that their motivation for running is because concerns around democratic representations, right? That they don't see their voices as women, as mothers being heard on council. And I think that that's something that is changing. But then you have to remember that these women are coming into a structure that has been traditionally patriarchal, that has been traditionally dominated by men, um, continues to be dominated by men actually continues to be dominated by older men. That's another interesting thing that's actually come out is that looking at ages, uh, women actually tend to skew because it was always thought that women going into politics would wait for their kids to be out of the house and what have you. So they would tend to skew older than their male colleagues. And I would say the ages are within range of each other with a tendency for women to be a, a little younger. What I have read, now granted, this doesn't apply to municipal government, it was actually applied to federal government, is that candidates of color, right, candidates from ethnic equity-seeking groups actually are often more likely, right, to advocate on issues for all equity-seeking groups. Right, than just white than white women are talking about the variation in white women. So more of the intersectionality I, of it. More of the yeah. intersectionality of it, and what we probably could use are more women of color, absolutely, right? more indigenous women on councils. The problem is is getting those women on council, and 
it's not, I would say, a problem with the voters. Association of Municipalities of Ontario had, you know, has some really good data on this. That actually in the last, you know, municipal elections in Ontario, women actually did better than men in getting elected. The problem is not enough women ran. And it's about getting women to run. And that's where we get into this whole a whole um, issue of if you can see it, you can be it. Right. And, and and it becomes this kind of awful chicken and egg kind of argument in that we can't get women to run because there aren't enough women on councils. Right. And if we can get more women on councils, we should be able to get more women to run. Talk about making yourself a target. Right? Yeah. Making yourself a target in even in a mid-sized or to large community, you know, we've seen women counselors become targets, right? There's this kind of problem with, well, one, this discourse of targeting women politicians, which is really ugly, but also the intimacy of that in municipal contests, right? Because, you know, it's it's all transparent. You then feature that in a small town where everybody knows each other. It becomes even more of a sense of, you know, making yourself yourself a target. So that's going to be, I think, something that's going to keep you from running, which is one of the reasons why it's really gratifying to see the number of women who when asked why they ran, are saying, because we needed a woman's voice on council. Some of them are even saying, you know, I would gladly give up my seat to a woman of color. I'm here now because I'm the one that can get in. I'm the one that has the resources. I'm the one that has the support. One more thing I want to ask you, and this plays into it a little bit, and it it also has to do with the proclamation part and a lot of Mm -hmm. the other things. And it has to do with media. It has to do with the lack of accountability for municipal politics in smaller communities, meaning <laughs> that there's a that there's a reporter there actually documenting and witnessing what's happening and writing it for the paper. And contrary to that, we have big conglomerates like Post Media and Bell Globe Media and all of the big organizations have pulled up stakes out of the smaller communities. And we have Facebook groups filling in the gap Mm -hmm. of people's voices in the community who are not nonpartisan, who are Mm. not witnessing. They're making assumptions. They're, you know, there's, and so I want to ask your opinion about that. The destruction of the Canadian media landscape is actually the wor- one of the worst things that is happening to our democracy. Because it's not just small communities, it's mid-sized communities, right? Previously, you know, even in, in London, we have a problem with this. And it depends on who the journalists are, right? We've just lost a young woman who was covering City Hall, actually would live stream city council meetings, right, on Twitter. Our local coverage of what's happening on council is is really problematic. What is happening in 
smaller communities of, you know, 9,000, 10,000 or 2,000 or, you know, or 1,000 because there just no longer is the investment in local coverage. No wonder people are uninterested because it's hard to find out what's going on. Right. You're already living an extremely busy life. Basically, what's really happening is that social media coverage of uh, what's happening at City Hall is going to be undertaken by not the middle of the road, <laughs> but your extremes. Right. So there's going to be a level of kind of bias and, you know, in certain cases, just misinformation by intention. It's problematic. Thank you so much, Dr. Newman. I really appreciate your time today. Want to keep the conversation going? Subscribe to the Clearing a New Path newsletter. Drop me an email, follow the podcast on social media, and or you can leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Clearing a New Path podcast artwork is supported by the graphic design of Katie Wilhelm, and the music branding is by The Hankering Studio. The podcast is produced by Radar Media in Thames Centre, Ontario. It is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga or neutral peoples who once used this land as their traditional beaver hunting grounds. The First Nations communities closest to the studio are Chippewa of the Thames First Nation, Oneida Nation of the Thames, Muncie, Delaware, First Nation, and the Chippewas of Kettle and Stony Point. I will speak to many more people across Turtle Island this season, and as a settler here, I'm committed to deepening understanding of colonialism, the TRC's calls to action, and to reframing responsibilities to land and community. I am grateful to Mother Earth and Creator for the opportunity for love and connection and to the spirits of the elders and the medicine people who still walk the earth. Until next time, 